welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Uh, so, friends, we uh, have been doing a series that we call the Advent Art Series over the last couple of years. And uh, in it, we have asked a writer and an artist to come uh, each Sunday of Advent prepared with something to share uh, related to that. And so this year, the the theme has been around waiting and longing and anticipation. Uh, So Bethany Pearson and Issa Day are coming today. Uh, Bethany's going to read something that she's written, and Issa uh, has painted this piece over here that she'll share a little bit about. So Bethany, if I could have you wherever you are. There we are. Very good. If you'd welcome Bethany. everybody. Um, So as Micah said, my name is Bethany. Um, I'm a student at Northwestern University. Um, And when I got the email from Micah asking if um, artists or writers from the community wanted to share their pieces, I got really excited and I said yes before I had any idea what I was going to share. So I tried to write something about longing that I'm feeling now um, and realized that that longing was too too deep to put into words, and so I had to go back and look at my past and see what <clears throat> what I had been able to put into words um, before. So this poem is um, my best shot at a testimony, um, and I hope that it blesses you. This is called Disheartened After Mary Carr. <clears throat> I spit out a few scathed words, and they burrowed when they hit far-fetched far-fetched from cold and coated well walls of the heart. I had poems waiting there, unsung and unholy. Even in the public schools, they didn't like third graders cussing out their playmates. Finally, scratches screwed themselves onto paper under candlelight, structured with the grace of deliberate ingratitude, hoping for some sort of death. Masks, yes, and black lace, turning off a god I could not bring myself to not believe in. Played it safe with barbed wire smiles because no, I don't love you, meant I love you, made pure by martyrdom. No greater love is there than this. Hold it back, control yourself, shut off your imagination, or imagine only freedom you can't have. For freedom, Christ can't have set us free. Eventually, these ribs couldn't bear the weight of stone, and accept it as you are, they said, praying. And first tears, then poetry spluttered out, hot and rusted, spitting, having been damned in that heart too long. What's inside of me finally accepted, finally offered, mind and spirit seething with cooperation, watering the walls of that dry well soul. Okay, I said, and found space by filling the page. Thank you. Hello, my name is Isa Day, and... I'm really privileged to be here today with you and being able to share uh, my painting this Advent season. Uh, When I I got a theme for uh, today's Advent art, was waiting, uh, I was thinking about being still, uh, calm, just waiting, you know, this kind of peaceful moment of waiting. But uh, there's been so much happening lately. And I thought waiting is not actually calm and still and, and just peaceful waiting. It's a lot of struggle. It's a lot of waiting with this unpatient feeling when your heart might be broken, but you're still waiting. When you're trying to hold on to it, 
So, um, maybe I will start with colors I chose. I thought that um, choosing black and white colors kind of showed this um, maybe a little bit darker times of our life. But then for the background, I chose a very gold and very shiny color. And if you come closer later, you can see how the light reflects from the painting and what a difference it makes when you look from different sides. Uh, also, the season in my painting is, uh, is winter, um, waiting for spring, something new to come, uh, for new life to start. Um, and then the roots coming out of the guider. Um, I thought about holding on, something that can hold you so strong that you will be waiting for this hope and um, this promise that you are holding uh, and you are waiting, uh, even if it's windy, if it's winter, if um, maybe you are fighting against it, the guy with umbrella, um, but you are holding strong and you are waiting um, for this new life. Your blessing. Thank you. Well, friends, uh, if we haven't met, my name is Micah. I'm the lead pastor here at Awaken, and uh, so glad to see you all. Um, if you weren't here last week, uh, you'll notice Sarah is painting. Uh, she painted last week. We'll be painting all through this series. Uh, so, hi, Sarah. So uh, this series is called This Great Light. We're in week two of Advent. And um, if you didn't know, Advent comes from a Latin word that means waiting or uh, arrival or coming. And uh, originally, Chris, uh, Advent was actually connected to Epiphany, not Christmas. Uh, so a little review, review from last week. But uh, originally, in the 4th and 5th century, the church would actually sort of um, uh, enter a season of waiting and preparation for uh, new baptisms or, or new believers who were coming into the community that they would welcome in at Epiphany. And so Advent was this preparation season of welcoming these new believers into uh, the people of God and the family, which actually is quite beautiful. Uh, and it's not until the 6th century that you find Christians who then uh, take Advent and connect it to the second coming of Jesus. And it's not until much later in the, uh, the Middle Ages that Christians begin connecting Advent to Christmas as we do now. Um, and so Advent for us is this season of waiting, this season of hoping and anticipating something that's not yet come, but that we hope will come. And so last week we talked about darkness and this idea that Advent is right in the middle of the darkest season or the darkest part of our calendar year. And I offered the possibility that darkness isn't always evil or sin, but it, it, sometimes it's just darkness. And that... Uh, if you look at the scriptures, you see this theme of God always bringing light from darkness throughout the story of God. And so can we, will we, entrust God with these places of darkness in our own lives? Uh, so that was the invitation for last week. And, and this week I want to actually tap into something that I prayed for last week if you were with us. I prayed that we wouldn't rush too quickly to Christmas, but rather that we would take the time needed in Advent, that we would actually experience darkness and waiting and longing and anticipating something, and desire. Uh, these themes of Advent, uh, if we're honest, I think they're a little harder for us to inhabit, right? Uh, none of us like waiting. Um, we, we would rather skip to Epiphany and Christmas, right? Joy and fulfillment and excitement and birth, new things. It's a little bit like Lent and Easter. Uh, so often, many of us, we want to skip to Easter and not really do Lent and Good Friday. But I think that there's something that's essential, to the process. And when we skip ahead or we're not willing to sit in those seasons, I think we actually under, 
we, 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 we don't get as much as we could out of resurrection if we skip over Lent and denial and Good Friday, the despair of Good Friday. And so similarly, I think Advent is that way. If we skip Advent and we rush too quickly to Christmas, I think we minimize what epiphany and the light of the world coming into darkness really means. So longing and desire and waiting, yearning, not on the top of the list for us as humans, certainly not on the top of the list for us as Americans, right? It's America. I want my latte now. (laughs) Double whipped cream, extra hot, no soy, add the something. I want it now. (laughs) Yeah, we don't value waiting. And we don't value longing for something that we don't have. We just go buy it. If we want something, we get it, usually. Even religiously, right? As evangelical Protestants, I mean, we want things to happen. I mean, our history and our name would say we're about evangelism, evangelical. Whether you would like to take that adjective today or, or not, regardless, it's about conversion, you know? We want things to move, we want things to happen. So I think it's safe to say that we have a hard time waiting with waiting in darkness. I... I I was on staff at a church for a while, and uh, I remember being in this conversation where we were, uh, you know, reviewing some ministry initiative that we were uh, participating in, and things just weren't going as quickly as they maybe could or or should have gone. And this particular person who was in the room was very linear sequential. Now, that's not a knock on linear sequential people. They're wonderful. I married one. I love her. Um, But this particular person, it was like A plus B equals C. He He actually said this during the meeting, like, if you have a good strategy and you execute that strategy, then what's the, what's the problem? Why are we not seeing things move along here? Right? A plus B equals C. But I think many of us know that, that it's just not that simple sometimes. Right? You have great parents who execute great parenting who have a kid that struggles their whole life. Or you have a great business plan and the right people on the bus and then a recession hits. Or something happens that's out of your control. And so sometimes things are out of our control and we just find ourselves there, in the dark, waiting, stuck, enslaved, whatever the case may be. So often what we do then is try harder, right? Work longer, stay later, read another book, attend another conference, sort of ratchet it up one more click, cinch the belt up one more. Just do, hard, do, do better, work harder. But one of the things that we find in Scripture that I want to focus our time on today When people find themselves in darkness and in waiting and in slavery or stuck in the scriptures is the cry. That moment when something comes out of the deepest places that you know. That moment when the layers sort of get peeled back and the level of vulnerability and authenticity is unmatched and something comes out of you, this cry I mean, we've all heard the cry of a baby, right? When they're happy and doing what they do, which is sleep and poop and eat. But then they want something and they just cry out. Or if you've ever been with a friend and there's that moment of just brutal honesty, sort of like the end of the rope, we say. I'm at the end of my rope. So the cry, what's happening in that moment and where is God and how does God respond? That's what I want to talk about this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 1. We're going to start in Exodus 1. We're going to read a few verses, and then we're going to skip to Exodus 3. So get your, uh, get your 
Bible trivia fingers ready. And actually, I'll invite you to stand as we read the scriptures. It says this in Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun. There's one for you, pregnant ladies. Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, another doozy. Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and his brothers and all of that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Skip to chapter, end of chapter 2, verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help, because of their slavery, went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Pray with me. God, this morning, as we enter this story, which is just so old and ancient, and yet, uh, not very far from our experience even today in 2015, where people find themselves in slavery and in darkness and waiting for you to come back. God, as we uh, study and we open ourselves up to your word uh, and your words that you might have for us this morning, I pray that we would tune our hearts in to hear your voice. Um, in whatever form that takes today. I pray this in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Many people would argue that Exodus is actually the beginning of the Bible. Uh, Genesis is a bit of a prologue, right? It answers some very important questions like, how did we get here? Who are the people of God? And why are we in slavery? But the real story actually begins in the Exodus. The story that dominates the arc of Scripture actually begins in the Exodus. It's a story about slavery, about redemption and liberation. It's a story about the promised people of God living in the promised land. It's a story that's moving towards God reigning as king again. And shalom, this Hebrew understanding of peace, flourishing for all. So Exodus actually, many would argue, is the beginning of the story. Genesis is the prologue. And it gets a giant jump start with the people, in dark, the people of God in darkness crying out to God at the end of chapter 2. Many would say this is the beginning of redemptive history, that verse, 22 and 23. And the Israelites cried out to God, and God heard them. Many would say it's the beginning of the story. So I want to notice a couple of things in the story, and then I want to move to a few observations uh, or a few observations about the story and then move to you and me, if you will. So, 12 and 70 find themselves in Egypt. If you've, if you've been here at Awaken, this might ring a bell. We've talked about this before. But it's interesting that the end of the book of Genesis ends with 12, the 12 sons of Israel and 70 people, 70 elders, moving and, and actually going, leaving the promised land and coming into Egypt. And then the book of Exodus begins with the 12 sons of Jacob and 70 elders, or 70 in all, counted there in Egypt. And that's actually a, a, a 
sort of narrative connection all the way back to another story where there's 12 palms and seven, or 12 and 70 palms in the desert. And all of this is essentially saying, what the author's doing here is that Israel, the people, find themselves in Egypt. And Egypt in the scriptures is not only a place, a geographical dot on a map, but a, a, a spiritual state of being. So one can be in the promised land, but living as if you were in Egypt. And Egypt actually means, in Hebrew, the narrow place. So what the author is essentially saying is that the people of God, who were in the promised land, have made their way, not just to Egypt, but to Egypt. And there is a pharaoh that knows not Joseph, one of your tra- some of your translations might say. There's a pharaoh, a king in Egypt who knows not Joseph. And the word for know is the word yada. And when we say, oh, I know that guy, we, th- we, we mean like, oh, I recognize his face or I might know his name or I've met that person. But to know in Hebrew is a much, much deeper concept. It's very intimate. It's, it's about connectedness and relationality. It's about intimacy. And so to not know someone is to say something about their humanity or them as an actual human being and to sort of a disregard of them as a person. So what does it mean to say that there is a Pharaoh that knows not Joseph? Essentially, Israel, the man and all of his sons, and specifically Joseph in the beginning of Exodus, they've all died. And so there is a Pharaoh that knows not Joseph. There arose a Pharaoh that knew nothing of this story that the book of Genesis tells. There arose a Pharaoh who knew nothing of this covenant that was made. A Pharaoh who knew nothing of the promise that was given. A Pharaoh who knew not Yahweh. So the king of the narrow place knew not Joseph. So the question then is, well, who is Joseph? And the answer is not Donny Osmond. I've been working on that. Is that. Did I deliver that okay? Is that good? <laughs> Timing, I felt like it was pretty good. So who is Joseph? Joseph in Hebrew means even more. Joseph, at this point in the story, is the only person in the story who's acting like Israel, the people whom God had called out to be this light in the world. So Joseph is the only representative of Israel, really. He's the only one who's seeking the shalom of his brothers, This is what he's sent to do by his father Jacob when his brothers sell him into slavery, if you remember that story. Go see to the shalom of your brothers who hate you unto death. So he's the only one in the story representing Israel. He's the only one looking out for his brothers. He's he's accused unjustly by the Pharaoh, but somehow through it all, he's hanging on to hope that there is even more. He's doing his own name in the story. So what does it mean to say that there's a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, remembering what no means? I would submit that the author is essentially saying, in Egypt, the narrow place where the people of God have wandered and made home, is a place where the king has no Joseph in him. It's like the absolute opposite ends of the spectrum. It's this narrow and dark place where the people of God find themselves stuck and enslaved. And so in verse 23 we read, after the Pharaoh has died, the Israelites cry out to God. Where is God when we cry out? What's God's disposition towards someone who cries out? What is God up to? Does God have any concern or care? What kind of God are we actually dealing with here? Because that's a question that the ancient Near Eastern mind wants to know. The people who would have written this and received this letter or this story 
Understand the gods to be completely and utterly disconnected from anything that you'd care about as a human. In fact, you as a human are somewhat annoying, maybe utilitarian at best, but annoying at worst, to the gods. So what kind of God are we dealing with here? The story of the Exodus is speaking into this. And so what we get at the end of chapter 2 is absolutely stunning and beautiful and completely off the beaten path in terms of what people thought about who God was at this point in, in, in history. So what do we get at the end of chapter 2? There are four different vocalizations of Israel's desire in Exodus 2, 23 and 24. Two different times it says that they groaned, their groaning went up to God, and two different times it says that they cried out to God. Fascinatingly enough, there are four responses. It says that God remembered them, it says that God heard them, that God sees them, and God was concerned about them. Any guesses as to what the word concerned about them is? Yada. God knew, knew them. So if there is a king in Egypt who knew not Joseph, there is a God named Yahweh who knew his people. So there's four cries, there's four responses. It's as if the author wants to say the kind of God we're dealing with here is the God who always hears the cry of the oppressed, the enslaved, the beaten down, the lonely, the marginalized, the needy, the poor, not just once, but every time they cry out. Their cry inaugurates the action of God. It begins redemptive history. And chapter 3 opens, Now Moses was tending his flock of his father Jethro. And we all know, know, of course, Moses becomes the activity of God in the story to redeem and liberate the people who cried out. By the way, by the dancing way, does anybody, if you read through the Gospels, recognize and look for the, the number of times and the places where somebody cries out to Jesus? He always responds. The blind guy, Bartimaeus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And his disciples are trying to shut him up and Jesus stops and says, bring that guy to me. The, bl- the woman who's bleeding, who grabs his cloak, he stops. The Roman centurion and on and on and on and on. When someone cries out, Jesus, Yahweh's representative, listens, hears, responds. God always hears the honest cry of a heart that is in waiting, in darkness, stuck, enslaved. Now, pause. I want to just say for a moment that there may be some of you here here this morning who are saying, like, I want to call the bull card. Because I have cried out and I heard nothing. I have friends who have been crying out, hearing nothing. There are people who have been marginalized or poor or broken or lonely and I have heard them cry out and they hear nothing. And I want to say, I see you, I hear you, if you know parenthood, Zeke, (laughs) Millie, I see you, I hear you, I hear you, I have been there before, where for seasons, days, months, years, it seems like you cry out honestly and hear nothing, and I would say if you would please bear with me this morning and come back in two weeks, I want to talk about waiting, 
Because I think that there is a... I struggled this whole week with this paradox. Because this is our experience sometimes where we cry out and it seems like we hear nothing. And the moments in my life when I have seen the most profound activity of God has been inaugurated by a moment of, I am at the end of my, myself. It is inaugurated by a cry. And in scripture, we see again and again and again and again that when somebody cries out, it begins something. So I want to just hold that tension and say that I say it out loud. I recognize it as true, and yet, I could tell you story after story after story of my own life, and we could probably go around the room and tell story after story of when we finally reached the end and said, I give, something happened. Something happens. So it's both and. I don't want to pretend like it's not. Now, what is happening when we cry out? Maybe a turn to you and me as we think about this. Because I think something is happening when we get to that place where we utter that thing that is deep down inside of us and it finally makes its way out. And the layers are peeled back and the masks are taken off and it is vulnerable and honest. In that moment, I think there's something happening that is true and right that I think God honors When we cry out, we say a couple of things, and I want to just maybe close with this. When we cry out, I think we're saying, I can't do it. I cannot do it. Which speaks to our limitations, which speaks to our capacity. You are not limitless. There are boundaries on what you can and cannot do. That's why, by the way, Sabbath is a gift to you as a human. Because you are not limitless, you have limits, and there is a capacity, there is a point at which your capacity runs out, and you cannot do or give any more. There is not an infinite reservoir of energy or willpower or strength or even desire, and there will come a point when you say, I can't do it anymore. And when we cry out, I think at some level we're saying, I can't do it. I've reached the end. Whatever I have to give to try to fix, to try to make, to try to move, to try to change, I can't do it anymore. And this is where I end and something else begins. And I think that that moment is a very important moment in spiritual life. Where before the divine, I recognize I cannot do anymore. Because the, the, the dirty little secret about modernism and the world that we live in is that we have all the answers, that we can fix all the problems if we just put enough energy and people and manpower or woman power behind it, that we've got it within us to fix it. And I think if you watch the news at all lately, you'd recognize that that's probably not true. And so maybe there is something in Advent and in Christmas that's good news for us who find ourselves watching shooting after shooting after shooting, going, what in the hell is happening out there? I can't do it. The cry is a moment when we say, I cannot do it. And maybe you find yourself there today. When we cry out, we're saying, help me. 
help me. When's the last time you just looked at another human being and said, help me, please? Because we're strong, right? And we don't want to be a burden to anybody. This moment that I think we're getting at in Exodus 2 is a moment that's screaming, please help me. I, uh, many of you know I have three daughters, and I was thinking about this moment with one of them where, as a parent, right, you, you sort of wander into something, and you, this uh, particular child was working on something, and they were just, like, frustrated as all get out, and just couldn't get what they were trying to do, right? And so you kind of, as a good parent, right, you stand back, and you let them work it out, and try to, you know, do it on their own, and it's just the snowballing. It's getting worse, getting more frustrated, and so then there's this moment where you say, honey, can I help you? No! I, and what's the next response? I want to do it myself, right? I'm going to do it myself. So you stand back and you honor their request and it's just, it's getting worse and worse and worse and you can tell this is not, gonna, this is not going to happen. Honey, can I help you? No, I want to do it myself. Parenting provides lots of windows for me into what, it, what the relationship between God and humanity looks like. And how many times have we said, no, I want to do it myself. I'm good. I don't need your help. Or even just to someone near you who loves you and cares for you. Where they honestly say, can I help? And we say, no, I don't want your help. Which is a, often an, a, a statement that's rooted in pride. Because we don't want to need anyone else. Or we feel that we might be a burden to somebody, and so we don't invite them in to help. But this moment in Exodus 2, when the Israelites cry out, when we get to that place, I want to suggest that it's a moment where we, we finally are willing to say, help me. And imagine if I, the flawed and idiotic person that I am as a dad, want so badly, right, to help my child, how much more? And I think somebody might have actually said this about God. Jesus, imagine how much more God would want to do that for us, to be that for us, which is really a window into the heart and the desire of relationship that God has for us. I can't do it, help me. And maybe the last one, I need. Hi, my name is Micah, and I have a need. When we get to this point and we cry out, I think at, at some level we're saying, I need something that I don't have, that I can't fix, that I can't get. I need. And this is a tough one for us as humans and as Americans, right? God helps those who help themselves. Pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. I mean, these are all quippy little sayings, but this is ingrained in our psyche as humans who live here in this world. We think God will help us if we are willing to help ourselves. Or we think that we just need to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. I wonder if this morning there's anybody here 
for whom it would be true to say needs, to, needs the inauguration of God's activity in their life. Needs something to change. Needs something to move in a different direction. And while I hold these two seemingly contradictory truths right here, this morning I want to say this, that when we get to the point that we are willing to cry out to God, something is happening in us, and I think something is happening in the divine that, we can bear, that, that the scriptures bear witness to and that our own lives bear witness to, and so I want to offer the invitation this morning. Maybe that's the next move. Whatever way that looks like, between you and the divine, you just say, I can't do it anymore. Help me. I have a need that I, that I want you to fill. And what does that look like? Advent is a season of waiting. It's a season of longing. It's a season of hoping, desiring. And so this morning, I want to just invite us to a time of silence where we really actually sit with that. Where we don't rush too quickly to anything else, but we just say, what does it mean for you and for me to cry out? And maybe, maybe, that, maybe that's not what you need today. But maybe there's somebody in your life who does. Um, so maybe for the next minute or so, I'll invite you to consider that. To say, what does it look like for you to cry out to God? Or is there anyone in your life whom you could hold before the divine this morning? Before God. And entrust them to the care of God. So if you would, just for a moment. Pray with me and then I'll invite you to a time of silence. God, this morning as we allow this story and these words to speak over us as we place ourselves under them to the degree that we can. I trust that these are your words, that you have given them to us because you want to reveal something about yourself to us. That these words and this story is not just a story, but that it's true because it's revealing to us who you are, that you are the God who always hears the cry of the oppressed and the broken and the beaten down and the lonely and those who are at the end of their rope. And so as we take a moment this morning in silence, would you hear us? Would you see us? Would you remember us? Would you know us intimately, God? Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. Um, I trust that the Spirit is giving what we all need. Um, remember that there's Discover Awaken downstairs, so if you're new, you're welcome to join us. And uh, lots of stuff in the craft sale gallery, is what I meant to say. So, um, Joan is going to read a benediction for us, so if you would, uh, receive this. Remember that there is prayer available after the gathering. What an invitation. Come as you are. It would be the prayer partner's privilege to pray with you and bless you. May you come to know and trust the fact that God always hears an honest cry. <laughs>
And so when you reach the end of yourself, your patience, your capacity, your ability, your resilience, your strength, may you cry out to the God who hears you, sees you, remembers you, and knows you. Grace and peace. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakencommunity or on Twitter at awakencommunity. See you next time.